This podcast is sponsored by Position Green. To be an insider, you can subscribe to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable, wherever you get your podcasts from. And please, leave us a five-star rating. What did I just say? 1.21 gigawatts! What the hell is a gigawatt? doesn't sound like the usual mindless, boring, getting-to-know-you chit-chat. This is the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I'm your host, Ron Culver, and today we have an incredible Follower Friday in store for you. Mike Niemer had the great fortune of attending the Commodities People Conference in Houston last week, known as the Energy Trading Week Americas Conference. But before we get to all the incredible people he met, here's Mike's better half, Ann Niemer, COO of eRenewable, with an important message. Position Green helps companies build resilient, and sustainable organizations. Position Green has a unique combination of ESG software, advisory, e-learning, and assurance that drives sustainability success and empowers positive change. Visit positiongreen.com to learn more. Thanks, Ann. Well, without further ado, here's Mike kicking off his first interview with Tim Berrigan, Executive Director of NEMA, North American Energy Markets Association. Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by Renewable. I'm Mike Niemer, and today, in person, for the first time after dozens of podcasts, I have Tim Berrigan, President or CEO and Executive Director of NEMA, the North American Energy Marketing Association. Tim, welcome to Houston, and welcome back to the show in person. Mike, it's great to see you. Thank you for having me here. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Well, it's my pleasure. I kind of got you into this gig because they, they, the conference reached out to me and said, hey, can you introduce me to that Tim Berrigan guy? And I said, sure. And lo and behold, you're here and you're going to be moderating this afternoon. And I'm happy to be here. There's a number of NEMA members that are here, and there's certainly lots and lots of potential NEMA members that are here. So for the association, we appreciate the opportunity, and uh, it's good to see you. It's always good to see you, and it's a sense of pride that somebody listened to our podcast and actually wanted to be associated with somebody that we always have on. And, you know, NEMA and E-Renewable and the Green Insider have had a special relationship now for three solid years. I appreciate you guys. Hopefully you appreciate us just as much, and uh, we want to continue that relationship. And to- we- totally agree. And I, and I would also express, Mike, that we, we do believe that our growth has correlated with, with our involvement with you guys. So you guys have been a big part of NAMA's success over the past few years. Well, that feeling is mutual. Ann and I believe a part of our growth has been being associated with you guys that whole time. Both of our companies have expanded and grown tremendously over that time. And I think the two kind of work well hand in hand together. So thank you guys also for that. But speaking of this show, we're at the Commodity People's uh, Energy Trade Week Americas Conference, and you're moderating this afternoon. What are some of the panels you're going to be moderating? So I'm, I'm managing the renewable track for this conference. Uh, basically, it's a breakout session. We, we have several keynote speakers that are, that are going to talk about funding availability from the IRA and, and how that's spurring renewable development. We're going to talk about risk management around battery storage. And we're just going to talk about risk management around renewables. So I've got a few different panels, uh, people a lot smarter than me. I'm just going to try to lead them through a conversation about where everything is with regard to risk as it relates to to renewables and batteries. Well, you know, when you get, you know, seven, eight hundred people at a conference, which is bigger than your normal name of conferences, two different structures completely, you know, 
different things are going to questions are going to come out of the audience that you maybe didn't have to field before, but now you got a panel that'll field them. I'm sure you've done this a million times within your own conference. It's going to be no different here, but it is going to be interesting to see because the audience is a little different crowd than you have at NEMA. It is, yes. So I'm curious of the aftertake for you about how the interaction with the crowd and the questions were compared to what you usually get at your own conferences. Will the different industry players that are here bring up questions that maybe you hadn't thought of in the past, or was it really everybody's in the same market and it's always the same questions? That would be interesting. I agree with you. I, I do anticipate uh, you know, it's a bit more of a diverse audience in, in terms of the type of companies that are represented. So uh, you know, we're, we're dominated with, with power marketers, electric utilities, renewable developers, those sorts of folks. And we all know each other. So name, name is a bit of a family in that way. Our conferences are two to 300 people. And lots of our members do business with each other day to day. You know, this is a pretty broad swath across the entire energy space. I think it's probably a bit more commodity focused as opposed to just energy focused. But you're right. I, I'm anticipating uh, some questions that, I, frankly, I won't be able to field, but we got great panelists up there, and I'll make sure that they field them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're going to do great. The panels are going to do great. The question is, I think you being on there for a whole half a day moderating, you maybe don't even have to work that hard at your own. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Because <laughs> I play the same game Howard just played. I, you know, I, yeah. I, I recruit folks to do the heavy lifting go. for me. Because so. it's yours. You're just waiting for tea time, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Pretty anyway, much. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Tim Berrigan, friend of the show. Tim will be back on uh, probably uh, before year end, so you can hear about all the conferences coming up. In the following year, we'll go over that at another time. And the Green Insider, nice to have you in person, and welcome to Houston. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, Thank Mike. You, my Great friend. town. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. What a way to kick things off on this Follower Friday. Next up, we have Pat McKinnon, First VP, Energy Markets and Digital Distribution with Navitas Assurance Partners. Well, our next guest here at the Commodities People's Conference, the Energy Trading Week Americas, I have Mr. Pat McKinnon. Pat, everybody's known you for a long time in the energy space. First, before we get on to what you're talking about here, tell us who you're with and what you're doing now. Okay. Uh, about a year ago, uh, we began a new adventure called Navitas Assurance Partners uh, to address the need in the market for more alternative assurance for trading and posting and things of that nature. Uh, there was a big demand uh, there, and we were able to uh, bring in some additional liquidity to fill that demand. Well... Because of the role you're playing in your, in your new position, in your new company, you're here today to also talk about the credit issues facing the renewable and sustainable and the ESG markets, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of the panel that you've mm -hmm. been on. It was. Why don't you tell the listeners what's going on here at the conference? Well, the conference panel set up across several different topics, but the one that consumed the room <laughs> that people wanted to hear about was the ESG effects on credit liquidity, capital availability, all of those things and it's been very dramatic over the last say six seven years the encroachment of the importance of ESG what a lot of people don't recognize is it's really surrounded by your social license to operate because ESG is a people issue a personal issue a human issue the money behind the money started insisting that there were more and stricter ESG standards on any distribution of capital of any kind and that filtered from private equity, through the banks, and all other lending resources or financial resources, including insurance companies. 
Now, are you really seeing those kind of kind of handcuffs, so to speak, mm. in the United States, or are you strictly talking more Europe and around the world more? Good question. It actually began in earnest in Europe, right? right? But it was pretty quick to filter over here. And it has been a dramatic visceral effect. There are standards and requirements, documentation requirements that are very hard to meet. Uh, the ability to understand what the company is doing on an ESG format. And I'll say something here that I try to say whenever I talk about this. Folks and listeners need to understand. It's not environmental social governance. It's environmental, comma, social, and governance. Three separate silos, not two. When you understand that, it's three elements when boiled together, create quite a bit of overhead in reporting and responsibility issues that the financial companies are saying, if you don't have a policy or you don't have a purview or you're not actively addressing this, we're not going to loan you. We're not going to insure you. We're not going to let you play. Wow. I mean, that it's kind of a shakes you in your boots a little bit, it doesn't does. it? It does. Yeah, and Pat does have his boots on today, <laughs> always. everybody. Yeah, always. <laughs> always. You know, because I don't know if everybody really understands that if you are a U.S. home-based company, mm-hmm. but you do business in Europe, mm-hmm. Europe is still going to make you abide by their rules, even though your corporation is here, correct? Oh, absolutely. You know, a lot of people have heard about scope one, two, and three. Yep. There's actually a scope four out there now, which is even scarier. Scope three is incredibly difficult to even begin to address, almost unattainable, depending on the industry you're in. In energy, it, I would argue that it is unattainable. Uh, and those stand, quote unquote standards are filtering back over here because there's no leadership in the metrics of measurement. Right now, nobody can figure out what to do for ESG because there's no standard out there. And the industry has probably fallen short in leading itself. In other words, they're waiting for somebody to come out with a plan that they can look at, kind of a follow-the-follower mentality versus engaging at the table and creating these standards so they're compliant with what the industry actually does, with what we do for a living every day. It's just not there. So they're shooting in the dark trying to meet a standard that nobody really knows what that standard means. All they know is that if they don't have one, they won't get a loan. People won't trade with them, etc. Well, you know, every week we've been fortunate enough to continue to gain listeners all along the line. Mm-hmm. And for the newer listeners, you brought up Scope 3. Give them your 30-second version of Scope 3. It's everything past the first purchaser of your product. Simple as that. Simple as that. That's scope three. Pat, what else was covered today on your stage? Uh, well, we, we, we talked a little bit about some digitalization issues, if you will. Uh, not, not too broadly. Uh, we talked about more of the capital impacts that are going on in the market. Uh, but it really, the session got consumed by the audience on the CSG topic. Is that right? Yeah. So you had good, I was stuck out here in the podcast lounge, right. so you were having good feedback, audience questions oh, coming yeah. up to the panel. Yeah, huh? we had a lot. Um, a lot of people questioning the, some of the agencies, for example, have tried to put out uh, ESG scoring, S&P right. as an example. They eventually backed off that because they couldn't be consistent. There was no way for, they, they were between a rock and a hard place. It, they could not consistently put out a score that made sense. 
right? And they, they, they found out that there were issues and they said, okay, we're going to pull back. They make it a part of their judgment, but they've now done it like most of us do on a bespoke level per counterparty. Yeah, you know, for two years now, everybody's, we've been saying it's the wild, wild west in ESG. And it, it, is. it still is. It still okay? is, yeah. I do expect in, is it three years? Is it five years? I don't know that it's sooner than three years that some rules and regulations will finally be established so people will have a better handle on the guidelines needed to achieve some targets. Well, let's put it in some timeline perspective, Mike. If you've got a 2050 goal, right, and I would tell you there's two states in the union that have unattainable goals, just completely unattainable. That's New York and California. But they're, you know, they're making people move, they're making people yeah. do things, and that's really their ultimate goal. Uh, if you are not actively involved in the creation of the standard that you must eventually follow, you're leaving your destiny in the hands of other people with absolutely no control over them. And I think that the industry has has really got to step up and engage the regulators on this and engage the publishers on this, such as an S&P. Uh, eventually, you're going to see indices created for this. Uh, you and I both come from a markets background where there's, yep. where there's indices, there's markets, right? Yep. You're going to be able to see this become what I would call fungible judgment. In other words, it's a judgment you can make a monetary decision on. And it's something that you can actually maybe go out and have instruments and tools to guard against some anomaly that shows up in the market where your judgment may have been a touch off, right? It's not that way today. You can go work your tail off to have a great program and somebody out there you need may just say you're completely insufficient and you never know why. And it, you got to start over and, and you, you still have a exactly, 2050 goal. Exactly. You still got a 2050 goal to meet. Yeah. If you look at the economics of... There's a difference between energy transition and net zero. They're not the same. They're not the same. They are not the same. Energy transition is an economic concept, right? What's possible under an economic concept that is sustainable? And if you look, if you look at the two graphs, I had one in a speech I did last week. If, if zero is the end of net zero, right, and we're starting up here at 100 today, economic transition is about 40%. Interesting. You know, so in the best economic framework that lots smarter men than I have come up with, they're saying in the best case scenario, we might get to 40% of that goal. But it's going to take some things that people don't realize it's going to take to get there. And all of this revolves around where's the money coming from? Where's the backing for all this? But I'll give you an example. In economic transition, there's almost no hydrogen considered. For most of the Bloomberg's model, for example, considers no hydrogen. At net zero, hydrogen is some 20-something percent of the equation. You and I both know the infrastructure for hydrogen really isn't there today. <laughs> not in three or five years. No, it's not. It's not. With all the best efforts, the government let out, what was it, $8.3 billion in the last couple of weeks for hydrogen initiatives. But the, the big, and I'm a hydrogen lover. I, I, I think it's a great tool, and I think it has a place. But if you look at today's economics and guys are trying to meet quarterly demands on their stock value, it doesn't pencil out because you're taking a whole ton of electricity to run an electrolyzer to make hydrogen out of water. You're burning electricity to do it. Just burn the electricity. Do something with that. And that's a short-term mentality, of course, but it's also the one that the folks that are responsible reporting to the shareholders take taken to heart. 
ladies and gentlemen, Pat McKinnon. Thank you so much for joining us My today pleasure. here Always at the conference. See, Always yeah. good. Beginning of 24, I've got to get you in studio for a full podcast. We have a lot we can talk about. I'd love to do that. Thank you. Have a great day. Yes, Thank sir. you all. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Great insight on where we are today with using hydrogen from Pat McKinnon. Mike had the chance to sit down with Michael Barrett, partner at EY. They discuss what it means to be in a carbon market. My next guest at the conference is Mr. Michael Barrett, partner at EY. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thanks. You know, I know I ran into you in the exhibit hall. You guys are exhibiting today. Why don't you tell the listeners what you're here talking to the attendees about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, this is just an opportunity to engage again with the energy trading community. We've been on a spell of not uh, being at these conferences, and so it's nice to be back. Really what we're focused on is communicating to participants what we're seeing from the CTRM landscape, how we're seeing it evolve, and what good looks like uh, as we move towards the commodity trading floors of the future. But that also involves what are you doing on a carbon perspective? How are you trading carbon? What does it mean to be in carbon markets? And how do you make that meaningful to your organization? Well, not all carbon is the same, is it? No, absolutely. We've spent a lot of time talking about that and really uh, talking about the price differences between direct air capture and uh, environment, uh, excuse me, um, agricultural uh, products and and, uh, environmental products. It is, those nature-based solutions are very easy to employ, but they're going to be lower cost solutions and not as marketable where some of those direct air captures are going to be those high dollar credits and much more meaningful to the market. Okay, why don't we stop right there and educate the listeners and don't understand what you're meaning by more meaningful to the market. Absolutely. So <clears throat> the quality of a carbon credit is what people really need to focus on. And let's say, for instance, you buy carbon credits from a forestry project. Well, that forestry project can burn down. And if there's not the right management, there's the, not the right uh, focus on how that forest is being maintained, your contract for long-term carbon credits is going to be at risk. Whereas with a direct air capture, that's an asset That's an asset that you have more confidence in running on a long-term pulling much more measurable carbon out of the atmosphere. So you're going to pay more for those credits. So give us an example. What's the multiple? Uh, One credit versus the other. What can you see? What's the range? It could be as much as 10 to 15, uh, uh, 10 to 15 time multiple uh, between some of those. I think on the low end of the pricing, you're going to see something around $10 for a nature-based solution. On the upper end of the scale, you could see up to 500 for a direct air capture credit. So there's a lot of difference in the quality. There's a lot of difference in the registries that are uh, supporting these credits and, and the market prices them differently. So if I wanted to buy one metric ton, if it, like, let's do a realistic business deal, a thousand metric tons, okay? Mm-hmm. On my ESG scoring, as I'm trying to get to net zero, that 1,000 metric tons, does it count any differently in my ESG scoring if it's on the low end of the cost or the high end of the cost? And that's the hedge-scratching thing about it. The answer is no. A ton of carbon removal is a ton of carbon removal. So if you pay the $10 versus you pay the $400 per ton, it's going to count the same. 
it's really about the long-term contract. The surety of the contract, right? right? And so you're talking about uh, the carbon credit today. How am I uh, using it in my reporting today? But very few people make sustainability uh, commitments to the market and then say, no, we're not going to do that again next year, right? You're setting yourself up for a long-term commitment and you need long-term contracts to support that. You need the reliability, you need the credibility uh, behind those contracts. So that's where the premium value comes in. And so on the clients that you guys work with, if you had a, a scale as far as the percentage of people that just wanna have something so they have the lower end, then you have some that just shoot for the middle and some that want just the very best, What's kind of the ratio? What's the bell curve look like? It's really looking at that investment value. And so I will say a lot of our clients look towards the investment value on it. So direct air capture has a very high return, but there's a large capital commitment. So you need to have the capital behind that. Nature-based solutions also require a capital commitment, but less so. And so the trade-off between these two uh, is what our clients are looking at. And it's really about how much capital do you have to invest and what the return you think it's going to go you're going to have and then ultimately how does that fit into your overall sustainability goals in terms of choosing um, nature-based programs science-based initiatives and what reporting standard you're reporting under because not everybody's reporting under the same reporting standard now so that's a bad way to answer your question because I've, it is a spectrum and people don't fit nicely into those three camps, but it really is ultimately about how you're managing your business, what capital you have available to you, and what type of return you're looking for on that investment. You know, uh, you just mentioned uh, ESG reporting and there's a wide range of how to report and so on and so forth. My previous guest talked about that same issue in his world. Yep. And so, you know, as we said then, it's the Wild West, and it continues to be wild, and that's going to be here for a little while, don't you think? I do, but by the same token, natural gas trading was the Wild West at one point in time, and now that's just an established domain that everybody is comfortable with. We're going to get there with carbon. We're going to get there with ESG reporting, but we have to take the ride, um, and we have to be willing to be part of the solution and take positions and say this is how we're going to do things they might not always work out we might have to backpedal on those but we won't advance the ball forward until we're actually going out and aggressively taking some of those actions michael barrett i agree we have to take the ride that's exactly right ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening to the green insider priority renewable we'll talk to you soon that was michael barrett partner at ey now, we pivot to an interview with William Bull Flaherty, CEO at Allegis Power. Mike? Welcome to the Grand Insider Podcast, Powered by Renewable. This is Mike Niemer, here to host another show from the Energy Trading Week America's Conference put on by Commodities People. I'd like to thank them for giving us the opportunity to podcast from their event. And I'm really excited to introduce our new guest. So today, our guest is William, some call him Bull. <laughs> Flannery, CEO of Allegis. How are you, Bull? Mike, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having us on the uh, podcast today. Man, I'll tell you what. Uh, I was sitting here in our, talking to my buddy Tim Berrigan from NEMA. You sat down and just 
the camaraderie, everything is great. That's what a conference is for, isn't it? It's been a great conference. There have been a lot of great questions, a lot of great panels. Uh, a lot of really good information has traded hands, and I think that overall, um, you know, it gives a lot of insight into where the overall industry is going. And that's very important given the rapid change that we're seeing overall in renewables and the implementation of green energy in the energy transition. Boy, isn't that the truth. Before we get into the weeds of some of the details, tell us a little bit about your company and when did you start and what are you doing? Absolutely. So, uh, Allegis is a startup. We're, we're a year old as of this month. Uh, so, happy, yeah, happy birthday to done. Allegis. Yeah. First year's done and we're still standing. And essentially, uh, we're looking to be part of the energy transition holistically. And, you know, we, in all our previous lives, um, have managed up to 9.5 gigawatts of power uh, on an operational basis. That's everything from wind, solar, uh, conventional and combined cycle uh, gas turbines, uh, as well as nuke, as well as, you know, financial power through financial swaps. And so uh, we've kind of gotten together and have are building overall projects uh, that are going to be part of this energy transition. And so that varies. We're kind of fuel agnostic as far as generation is concerned. Uh, we feel that there's a lot that has been done from a technology perspective, uh, especially on the, uh, on the gas turbine side. So uh, we, we currently have a project that's 420 megawatts of combined cycle uh, gas turbine generation that essentially would be able to burn up to 75% hydrogen in, oh, its, wow. in its current yeah. format. And um, we're having it fully scrubbed and frankly, uh, given the fact that we're fully scrubbing the HERSIGs on it, uh, we're able to actually air permit it by rule. Wow. Where is that one going to be? That is going to be in West Texas. In West Texas. In West Texas. So ERCOT West. Uh, that's a, one thing we've been noticing, especially in ERCOT, is the load growth that we've seen. Um, it's been growing at 7% for the last two years. And we've seen some groups, uh, you know, kind of like LCRA that are out there. And in their service area, they're growing at 8% a year. Now, that's breakneck growth for, uh, yeah, for electric know, load. You know, you got, uh, let's face it, the New Yorkers and Californian people moving here, so we're increasing population. You got, you know, the EV cars continuing to improve and improve. A little quick story for me. I live in an area of town five minutes from here, middle of Houston, Texas. In September, our power went out in two weeks four times at a minimum for three hours at a time. And you know what they claim? Our four block, 106 houses, there was too many EV cars putting the pressure on the transformers, and they had to come and add transformers in the middle of town. It's happening, people. At once, it's I, happening. I just lived through it, so yeah. Well, and, and if you characterize that 7 to 8% growth that we've seen, it really doesn't include EVs. Now, if we were to look at just EVs, and this is an overall average metric for the entire U.S., so kind of RTO, right. ISO agnostic. Uh, but they're looking at the grid growing for the next 20 years at 4% per annum as we migrate over from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. And so you'd have to add that on top of the 7-8% growth that we've seen currently. So your 7 8% is just population then? It's population and it's also industry right. from a standpoint. <clears throat> I mean, look at right now around Austin, you've got Tesla and you've got Samsung, both putting in very large factories that are going to run for three shifts. 
So they'll run 24-7. That's a lot of load demand. And, you know, frankly, uh, we haven't seen the expansion of overall chemical facilities or other petrochem facilities, which are all through Pad 3, which is the majority Houston area, and that's expanding to Corpus. Uh, Corpus is expanding their overall port facilities as well as their off-taking facilities for petrochemicals as well as petroleum. And we're also seeing uh, LNG come in in Brownsville. So you're seeing growth from the industrial side in a lot of areas, as well as people coming to fill these new jobs and new positions. And so it's going to be interesting to see how long this lasts, but we, uh, we're we just in the first innings, so to speak. And so as you guys are a year old and you're entering year two, where do you see year two and three kind of going for your new startup company? Where do you see that growth taking place for you? We're opportunistic. And so we're looking at right now, given the fundamentals for gas turbines and given the fact that we think that you will need 20 to 30 year assets that are out there uh, that are highly efficient to kind of carry us through this energy transition. We've looked at combined cycle, highly efficient gas turbines, normally at a heat rate of around 6.2. There's also other alum cycle plants that you can add in on that side. Alum cycle plant runs off natural gas, but it also, instead of using steam, uses heated carbon dioxide. And so it captures all that and is truly a net zero generation facility. And if we can put any of these next to carbon capture, uh, it makes them extremely efficient and moving towards that that green goal of net zero overall. Also putting emphasis on energy storage and batteries. Man, that's terrific. Uh, Great story. Your future looks bright. I'm glad you came by to visit. But before you leave, tell us a little bit how you've enjoyed the show so far. It's been fantastic. Again, we've had uh, a lot of really great interactions, a lot of really smart people. It's uh, it's tough to be put in front of a, an audience of, of people that uh, are very much into the industry and are passionate about it as you are. But uh, it, it's been great. And, you know, frankly, Commodities People does a great job every year. And so uh, we come to this and, and obviously we give a lot of information, but we find that we come away with it for, with more than we, we actually brought in. So it's been fantastic. And that's the important part. Bull, thank you for joining me on The Green Insider. Mike, it's always a pleasure. Hope you have me back. Thank you. That was No Bull from William Bull Flaherty, CEO at Allegis. Last, but certainly not least, Mike is joined by the founder and CEO of Molecule Software, Samir Salasia, to discuss how his software company benefits the energy community. Well, today we're also going to put on from the Commodity People's Conference, Mr. Samir Salasia from Molecule Software. Samir, hopefully I didn't butcher your last name. You did just fine, man. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for joining us. You're the founder and CEO of Molecule. Tell us a little bit about your company. Yeah, so Molecule is the world's most modern ETRM, CTRM company. We uh, uh, make software that helps commodities traders uh, manage their position in P&L. Uh, regardless of portfolio. We do especially well with uh, power and renewables uh, worldwide. Well, that's just terrific. Uh, I know you do some of the other Commodity People's Conferences around the different locations. How's this show in Houston been for you for the last two days? It's been incredible. Um, Something has happened over the last couple of years, and uh, Commodities People's event here in Houston seems to have created its own center of gravity. Everybody who's everybody in the uh, commodities world in Houston seems to be here. Uh, and, you know, everybody's backslapping and uh, saying hi to each other and getting to know uh, what's going on in each other's businesses. Well, you know, 
uh, yesterday. I was a little stunned having the podcast lounge right here, pretty close to the registration desk. The show's supposed to start at 9, and the line was still back to <laughs> the doors for people to get in. And it just, in the past conferences, I've been coming for three years here in Houston. I don't remember seeing that big of a crowd. I mean, it's a much larger attendance than we've seen in the past. That's right. And and I'm not sure what did it. I mean, maybe people have finally put COVID behind them. Um, also, a number of the large vendors in the industry made happy hours around this conference as sort of customer events. I think there were five. Oh, wow. Um, and so I think just everybody got together and, uh, you know, Howard and the team really did a great job putting this thing together. Yeah, they did. So... Um since you're on the Green Insider here today, I'm in the renewable, sustainable space. Mm -hmm. What in my market does some of your software do for some of the people that might also be in my space? What can you tell our listeners? <coughs> Excuse me. Absolutely a lot. Um, so for companies that make or buy and sell renewable credits and offsets, Molecule helps them keep them straight um, where they are what their eligibilities are, what they can be used for, whether they're expired. Uh, Molecule does a lot in that space, and it, it, is all, it also complements typically power, gas, and other uh, fuel portfolios. Okay, so you kind of all-rounded for all of energy, but thank you for the few words on the renewable market, because that hits what our listeners are really listening to. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure meeting you here today at Howard's conference, and I uh, hope it closes up as well as the first half of the show started. Thank you so much for having me, man. My pleasure. Take that it. is Samir from Molecule. Uh, this is Mike Niemer for the Green Insider, Pirate Bay Renewable. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thanks to all of our great guests from the Commodities People Conference. And thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Ron Culver, reminding you that if you are not yet a subscriber to the Green Insider Podcast, what are you waiting for? Become one today from wherever you receive your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. This podcast was sponsored by Position Green. For an introduction to our sponsor or find out how you too could be a sponsor, refer to our show notes to contact eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast.